Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. I love the words of the songs that we uh, just participated in. Because the truth is, positionally, in Christ, we already have victory. We've already been declared saints. We've already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are his children. We're his family. But we got a problem, don't we? (laughs) Anybody say amen? Come on. We still got these bodies of death, don't we? And we still struggle and wrestle with sin. So positionally, in Christ... It's a done deal, right? That's Ephesians chapters one through three. We're in Christ. Now, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Now we get to experience what God has declared to be true. And we look forward to what God has promised and it ought to change the way we walk today. Not only because we're in Christ, but because of what Christ said we're headed to, which is heaven. To be able to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever for eternity. The question is, are we walking in that victory? Are we trying to do something in order to attain victory, or are we yielding to the Lord who already has won the victory? See, that's part of the whole picture of the Old Testament. Certainly, as we look at the book of Joshua today, that's part of the picture. The land's already theirs. The land's already theirs. The question is, are they going to walk with God in the midst of doing what he said to do and experience his power, his greatness in conquering the land. Are they going to allow things to settle? Are they going to allow things to go, so to speak? Are they going to become comfortable with the pagan idolatry and worship of the people in this land? Or are they going to follow God and do what he said to do? It's by grace. It's by faith. Jericho is a beautiful picture of faith. It's a beautiful picture of grace. What did they do to knock the walls down? Folks, that's called grace. They walked around the walls. They blew a trumpet. They shouted. God knocked them down. So the picture is walking with the Lord in the victory that he already has for us in order to experience more fully what he's already declared for us. But we've got an issue, don't we? And that issue is called sin. (laughs) Man, I hate that word, don't you? It's just a bummer of a word, right? It's one of those things you look at and you go, man, do we really got to talk about sin? Well, praise God for what he's done for us. Praise the Lord what he's able to do for us. And praise the Lord for what he's promised us. The question is, are we yielding to him? Are we walking with him? In the midst of life and in the midst of the Christian life in particular, as we walk with Christ, how are we dealing with this issue of sin? Let me put it this way. God's victories can only be experienced when we walk with him by faith, in holiness, in his purity. See, positionally, we're in Christ. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, the Bible's very clear on this. You shall be saved. Now the question is, are you walking with him? Are you experiencing him? Or are you allowing all the Amalekites and Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and on and on and on and on? All the ite jokes. I could go there, but I won't. Are you allowing that to creep into your life? And are you allowing that to get settled in your life? Are you comfortable with that? 
Because as believers, we want to walk with the Lord by faith, which means that we're persuaded by him. And we want to walk in his power and his strength so that in the midst of life, for us as believers, we realize the victory that God's already accomplished, and then we get to experience walking in it day by day. Sin cannot be tolerated in the Christian life because God is holy. Folks, think about that. How are we tolerating sin in our lives? Well, we're going to teach through the whole book of Joshua today, okay? <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, my, my dad, we were living in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, and, and I don't remember why I was not with my dad, but he came home the one time we had been at the park, and there had been a marathon. And these guys were running the marathon, and my dad was on his bike. And when he came home, I could tell it made a mark on me, you know, because you could tell how exasperated he was. He said, I could barely keep up with those guys on my bike. He's like, they were running so fast, it was incredible. And I was pedaling next to him, and then I realized I was falling behind, so I started pedaling faster. Now, my dad's a doctor. I was getting this really weird picture in my mind of dad kind of interjecting himself into this marathon race and running on the road. And I'm thinking, dad, that's weird. Don't go there, you know. And now I know I, I see that same look in my son's eye at me sometimes <laughs> when I do stuff, you know. But I kind of feel like, that. I feel like that's what we're doing with the Bible this year, folks. This is a 30,000-foot view, and I'm pedaling as fast as I can, but everybody's just tracking faster than me. So amen. We'll, we'll try to get there. Every week, it'll be a marathon sprint that goes way faster than what any of us anticipated, okay? A key verse in Joshua is Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, and it's the latter part of that. And we're going to look at it at the end. But Joshua makes this statement. I'm sure you have it perhaps somewhere, maybe in a, in a picture or a carving or, you know, you've got it somewhere. As for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. What an amazing truth, huh? What an amazing truth. There's a line there. There's a line there. You're going to worship other gods. You're going to put up with this kind of stuff, this hedonism, this pagan idolatry. Joshua says, put away the gods that you even brought from Egypt. Put away these gods. Don't serve these false idols. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Five things this morning as we go through this. First of all, there's a corrupted heart. You know the sin of Achan. Secondly, confused covenant. They made a, a treaty with the Gibeonites. There's the conquered land. Man, I wish we had... So much time, so many things in all this in terms of how God worked and what God did in order to accomplish what he had promised them was already theirs. Beautiful. There's a concluded campaign. They get to the end of conquering the land and they begin to, to give all the inheritance. And there's a challenged nation. Joshua uh, dies, but before he does so, he lets everybody know. The history of Israel, what God has done, what they had experienced, and he encourages them, he implores them, he commands them, you keep serving the Lord. And he challenges them. Let me give you a picture, and I think I probably went out of order, I'm sorry guys, of the, of the Christian life here, because I think this is essential. This is a great chart. If you want to just email us, don't email me, I'm terrible with emails. I, I, technology is just not my thing, sorry. 
Um, but this is a great picture of comparing what happened with the Israelites and the Christian life. If you can see, they were in Egypt, in effect, that was uh, their time of being lost, if you will. And they came out of that, God rescues them dramatically, that's a picture of salvation. They're redeemed, but as they're walking in the wilderness, as redeemed people, they are walking carnally. They are walking not by faith. They are walking without the recognition that God is sovereign. And you can see that. They, they created the golden calf when Moses went up on the mountain in order to get the Ten Commandments. Incredible. And then you get into the second generation because the first generation didn't want to go into the land, so they were going to have to wander for 40 years. They get into the second generation. They cross the Jordan. And here's a picture for believers of walking in the promises, walking in the reality of who God is and what he has declared for each and every one of us. It's a picture really of discipleship. Are we willing to say yes to the Lord no matter what the cost may be? We're redeemed, but now are we going to walk with him? Are we going to say yes to him in every area of our lives? And lastly, they conquer the land, they do the work that God had called them to, and what do they have for it? They have their inheritance, that all the tribes get their portion of the land, and really for the believer, that's the picture of reward. What work is it that God has for each and every one of us that we're willing to follow him in with the promise that one day God will examine it, God will test it, and he will reward us according to the faith works that ultimately he accomplished in and through us as we said yes to him. Perfect picture, beautiful picture of what this is all about. Joshua chapter 6, verse 27, they get through Jericho, they defeat Jericho. And if you remember, Jericho was under the ban. In other words, all the articles of gold and silver, the precious articles, were to be given to the Lord. They destroy everything. It's the first battle as they enter into the land. It is a picture of the fact that God is going before them and that it is the Lord's battle and it belongs to him. There's going to be other cities. There's going to be other towns. They're going to have other plunder, so to speak. But now this particular battle, this first battle, everything in it is to be given to the Lord. And we find in Joshua 6.27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. We're going to see this. All the kings of the north and the south, they hear what God has done through Joshua, and they begin to band together against Israel because they know God is with them, and they see the victories that God has given them, not only on in the Jericho, but also on the other side of the Jordan where they had defeated some of the kings on that side of the river. Well, there's a problem. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban, for Achan, and then it tells his lineage, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now this is a precursor to another battle that they're going to engage in. Joshua doesn't know this. You know, Joshua didn't seek the Lord. And I think there's something to be said in that. Would the Lord have said, hey, no, 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 don't go up the eye. Don't go attack them yet. There is an individual within the camp that has sinned, and I'm not going with you until you deal with the sin first. 
I would think that that would have been the case. But the sin of Achan is the problem here. Joshua sends men to fight against I. He doesn't send the whole group. It's a smaller city. It sends spies, and they tell him, you don't need to send everybody. We got this. Folks, when we get self-sufficient, when we think we got something without going to the Lord first, we're, we're probably not in a good place. I routes Israel. They kill some 36 Israelis in the process. Joshua's devastated. And with the elders, he rips his clothes, he places ashes on his head, and he begins to pray to the Lord. And basically, he doesn't know what's going on. Lord, why did you bring us here if this is going to be the outcome? Your name is at stake here. Now, that's an interesting moment, because you know what? The truth is, the Lord is able to handle this. You know what he's worried about? You know what he's concerned about? You know what he wants to deal with in every one of our lives is sin. That's what he wants to deal with. He's more concerned about dealing with sin in our own lives and the purity of our walk with him than in the supposed victories that we're going to accomplish for him for his name's sake. Folks, uh, well, I'll get off a a soapbox on this, but it's everywhere. We we think, oh, we're going to do this for God and we're going to do it for his glory and, and this is all about your name, Lord. But we're not willing to deal with the sin in our own lives. How's that possible? It it, it shouldn't be. God is not mocked in these things. He knows exactly what's going on. And there's a consequence to the decree that he had made concerning Jericho and Achan's sin. The Lord tells Joshua to consecrate the people. In verse 11, he says, (laughs) I love this, because the Lord knows exactly what's going on. Joshua's on his face, and the Lord says to him, what are you doing on your face? Get up! And he puts it in a very succinct way. Israel has sinned. Wow. There's an issue. And before there is a walking and the victories that God has already promised, there has to be a dealing with sin first. So Joshua gets up, they put a process together, they consecrate the people, and in effect, it was probably by lot, it falls on Achan. They go through the tribes, they go through the families, it finally falls on Achan. And Joshua implores him and says, my son, what have you done? What have you done? Tell me what you've done. Don't withhold the truth from me. And Achan agrees, I've sinned. I've sinned. I took some gold, I took some silver, I took a a beautiful cloak, and I buried it in my tent under the ground, which has the idea that the family knew about this as well. As a result, they go and get the things that he has stolen that were to be under the ban. They gather together his family, all his livestock, all his possessions, They take him out, and they stone him to death. They pile the stones over him and burn everything. Wow. You say, harsh. That's harsh. Well, it is harsh. But I'll tell you what, God's holy. Have we lost the holiness of God? Have we begun to be so comfortable with sin in our own lives that we have forgotten 
why Jesus went to the cross in the first place. We don't know whether the children were put to death along with. It seems to be the case, but in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So the indication was the whole family understood what had happened and nobody spoke out about it. Nobody repented of it as they were doing the lots in order to go from Judah to the father's lineage to finally Achan. Nobody spoke out. Nobody repented of it. And so they all suffered the consequence. And the warning to Israel was very clear. God is serious about sin. Well, in chapter 8, Joshua sends up an army. They have an ambush. The Lord relents of his anger and gives Israel the victory over Ai. And at the end of that, after they have had victory over Ai, Joshua reviews and reaffirms the law with Israel in order to make sure they understand the covenant that they had entered into, what God will do and what they are to do in obedience to God. In Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, we get a picture of what happens as a result of the victories at Jericho and I. It says this, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. <laughs> Guess what happens? As a result of Jericho and as a result of I, the name of Joshua, the name of the Lord, and what God is doing through this people spreads to the entire land. And they begin to get worried because now they begin to gather together and they want to fight as one against Joshua. And the Israelites. And in the midst of this, the Gibeonites pull a fast one. Don't you like? I mean, the Gibeonites are unreal, right? We get a confused covenant. Again, Joshua doesn't seek the Lord on this. And this seems to be something that happened early on. It's not said afterwards. I think Joshua learned his lesson. You better seek the Lord about everything. Because the Gibeonites come to them and they want to make a treaty with Israel under a false pretense. They, they look the part, right? They would have won an Oscar. They would have they had a, a, an Emmy. <laughs> they would have won something. They had old clothes and even their bread was old and crusty and crumbled up when they brought it out. Their shoes were worn out. They looked dust. They were only from a few miles away. Man, here they come. Oh, we've heard of all that God has done through you. Even all the way back to Egypt, how he rescued you out, and all the different things that he did to the Egyptian army, and on and on and on and on. So we'd like to make a treaty with you. And they do, <laughs> which they weren't supposed to. Joshua chapter 9, verses 14 and following says, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Well, three days later, <laughs> isn't that the worst? Buyer's remorse is kind of like covenant remorse. Are you serious? All right? Three days later, what do they find? They find that actually the Gibeonites 
are from very close, but because they've made a covenant with them, they don't go back on it. However, they do enslave these people. It's interesting how Gibeon, the Gibeonites, understood that the Lord had commanded Moses to take the land and destroy the inhabitants. Joshua says, why did you do this? I, I, you know, Josh, Josh, probably a pretty dumb question. Honestly, I love Joshua. Joshua, you're here to destroy everybody. They did this because they don't want to die, Right? And the Gibeonites said that. Well, we know that the Lord told Moses to come in here and for you all to destroy everybody. So we figured we better do this if we want to live. And they do. Well, what happens? Five kings band together and actually come against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites send a message to Joshua and say, hey, remember that covenant you made with us? Hello, hello. We got five kings that are coming against us. You need to come up here and help us out. And so the Lord does. He brings good out of it. Because instead of having to fight five different battles, they fight one. And they destroy them. And what's interesting in the midst of this, Joshua chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, it says, Come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua, with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. They were all with all their armies encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. Verse 12 of chapter 10, it says this, And Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, now listen to this, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. What? Did you catch this? Oh, listen to the liberal theologians. They want to explain this away nonstop. Folks, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Seriously, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? I would hope that there would be a resounding absolutely not. Joshua is in the middle of the battle. It's going to get dark. He's worried that these people are going to flee and they're going to escape and then he's going to have to fight them again later. And so what does he do? He says, Lord, in effect, stop the sun. Keep the daylight. And how cool is it? The Lord's the one fighting for him and he does it. Now, folks, I don't know where to go with all this, but I take the word of God literally. And when the Lord, through the word of God, makes this clear to us that the sun stood still, in effect, at that moment in time, God stopped the normal functioning of the universe. Think how serious a moment this is that the Lord would do that. God is serious about judgment, and he's serious about sin. And Joshua, as a vessel, is being used of the Lord in order to experience the victories that God has already promised them. And the Lord does it in miraculous ways. Can you imagine the conversation back at the camp? 
did you see that? How cool was that? Wow, we've got the Anakim to worry about. No problem, no problem. He can cause the sun to stand still. We got this, folks. God's got this. He's before us in a way that's amazing. See, what happens when we begin to walk in the victories that God has for us, we begin to walk in purity, we begin to yield to the Lord, we begin to follow God, all of a sudden, God begins to do stuff all around us that's amazing. And we come back to one another and we go, whoa, did you see that? How cool is this? I had nothing to do with it. I can't believe it. I'm in shock. I don't know why. God's God, but I am. I can't wait to tell you about it. When we walk in God's victories, folks, God's at work all around us. It's amazing what the Lord is able to do if we would just trust him and walk with him. Well, there's a conquered land. There's a southern conquest. There's a northern conquest. Each strategic city in the south is fought against and defeated. Joshua chapter 10 verses 29 and following detail this out. They go from city to city to city to city. I think we have a map of it and it shows basically the southern swing of how it is that they came into the land and then they began to go to the different cities and began to conquer each city at a time and they literally conquer the entire south to the point where they don't have to worry about whether they're in control of that land or not. I don't know that that's the right one. I think that's the distribution of the land. That's all good. We'll get to that one in a minute. Joshua 10, verse 40 and following says this, Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Gilgal is right next to Jericho. That became their base camp. That's when they crossed the Jordan. They settled at Gilgal. They went and attacked Jericho. Then they went on and ultimately defeated Ai. Then they go inland and they begin to take out all the southern cities. When he says at one time, what he means on one campaign, because he spells out the different victories that they have. Well, now the northern kingdoms are fearful. I mean, I is one thing, Jericho is one thing, but the entire south has been lost. And so the entire north gets together. And they go, oh, no, no, we can't let them take us out one at a time because clearly they're strong enough to do that. We need to band together. We need to come together or else we will be destroyed individually. Well, it's a massive battle. God goes before them and they're victorious and all the kingdoms of the north fall as well. You think God's not capable God's not able. It's amazing to watch when God begins to intervene how the Lord is victorious because he's victorious in everything that he does. The question is not whether he's victorious. The question is, are we experiencing his victory? Are we dealing with sin in our own lives, yielding to the Lord, walking by faith, saying yes to him so that we have the opportunity of experiencing the victories in our own lives? In Joshua 11, verses 18 and following, there's a bit of a, a summary 
It says this, verse 18 and following, it says, Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 21 of chapter 11, it says this, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There was no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod some remained. Do you remember when the, tri- when the, when the spies went in initially from the first generation? What was one of the things they were scared of? There's Anakim in the land. We can't do this. It was kind of like, hello, no kidding. But God can. And Joshua and Caleb were used of the Lord mightily in these battles as the second generation goes in. It makes it very clear. Not only did they destroy all these people groups and brought judgment upon them, they even fought against the Anakim and won. Because God is able. God is victorious in everything that he does. There are some that have a a real difficult time with the judgment that God brought upon the Amorites. Roger Ellsworth wrote a book called Opening Up Joshua. It's a commentary on the book of Joshua. And I love this paragraph statement because he succinctly kind of brings us into the reality of God's judgment. He says, some are troubled by the destruction of the city of Ai, and I would extrapolate that and say, to all the destruction. We're talking men, women, children, everything. But this destruction came about only after these people, along with the other Canaanites, lived without regard for God. Their disregard for God followed the example of their forefathers who had done the same for centuries. During all those years, the Canaanites committed the most horrific sins imaginable, including, not isolated to, but including child sacrifice. And after giving them hundreds of years in which to repent, God finally visited judgment upon them. That's absolutely correct. Well, there's a conclusion to the campaign. They have the victory over Ai, obviously, as they've come in, Jericho, and then Ai, and then the southern kingdoms, and then the northern kingdoms gather together, and there's this one massive, huge battle that Joshua wins. God's done miracles all through this. And they come to a point where they have control, logistically, of the land. Now it's time for the reward. It's time for the inheritance. And Joshua, chapter 11, verse 23, says this. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Now you can put that map up there, and we get to see where all the tribe allotments were given. They did it by lot before the Lord. They were given those particular areas of land. Judah was in the south along with Simeon. You can see the different areas that each tribe was given. They're given their inheritance, what was already promised to them in the victory of the battle, that they fought hard for in the strength of the Lord as the Lord went before them, that they had already been promised was actually already theirs. And now... They get the fruits of it, so to speak. In chapter 14, Caleb, 
is given his inheritance. Uh oh. <laughs> I'm leaning on this too hard. Ah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's an interesting moment. So we'll do it this way. <laughs> that's great, huh? Dad, gum. I like this thing. I don't know that I like that so much. Caleb is given his inheritance. If you remember, when Caleb went into the land, Caleb and Joshua, as spies, were the only two that the Lord said was going to get into the land, go back to the land, because they believed and trusted the Lord. And one of the things that's really fascinating, chapter 14, he asks for the city of Hebron. Do you realize that the city of Hebron was ruled over by the greatest of the Anakim? (laughs) Is that cool or what? Did you catch that? The Anakim must have been giants. They must have been indescribable warriors. Clearly, people were scared of them. They were fearful of them. And what does Caleb do? In his older age, folks, he says, you know what? I want that city. Because the guy who rules over it is supposed to be the top dog of the Anakim. And I believe that God will go before me and give me the victory in the midst of it. And he does. How cool is that? Folks, what's before you that you're fearful of? What's before you that you're worried about? What's before you that somehow you think God is not capable, God is not able? And whether you're young or whether you're old, are we willing to trust the Lord in the midst of it? And are we so bold as to say, we're going to take on the most difficult thing because we know God is able to go before us. Praise God for Caleb. They give the inheritance of the land, and not only does Caleb get his inheritance, but in chapter 20, six cities of refuge. This is a direct picture of God's grace. Six cities of refuge are set up around the entire land so that anybody who accidentally murders somebody, kills somebody, doesn't do it on purpose, but they need to flee, they can go to a city of refuge. It's a picture of God's grace in the midst of all that God has done for them. The Levites are given their cities from each of the tribes. Remember, the Levites didn't have a specific area of land that was given to them. Rather, the Levites were given cities by the tribes so that they would have an inheritance. They would have a place to live. Well, we get to the, to the last part, and Joshua challenges the nation. And I love the fact that Joshua affirms these people. He doesn't just put them down, and he doesn't say, oh, you've worshipped idols, you've messed up, you've done this, done that. He, he affirms them. He warns them about what they are not to do, but he also affirms them in what they have done. Joshua chapter 23, verse 8. He says this, you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Isn't that cool? How is it that they walked in the victories? How is it that they walked in the midst of all that God had for them, whether it was Jericho or I, whether it was the southern kingdoms or whether it was the northern kingdoms and all the battles that they had won and been victorious in the midst of? It's because they had clung to the Lord and the Lord had fought for them. The Lord had gone before them. Joshua gives them 
a brief history, and he starts all the way back, actually, with Abraham. And he talks about how God had called Abraham away from idolatry. And God had created a nation out of Abraham, how they had gone down to Egypt, the promises that they had been given, how they had been brought out of Egypt. And now, even though they had wandered in the wilderness for a period of time, how they had taken the land. In Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And then he makes this famous statement, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, Joshua goes on to paradise. He dies. In verse 29 of chapter 24, it says, It came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Isn't that cool? Even in his old age, he had the vibrancy, he had uh, the strength in order to follow the Lord and to be used of the Lord to accomplish these victories. In verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Folks, catch that. How essential is your testimony to the younger generations? Your God's stories. What you've seen God do. How essential is that for the younger generations so that they too can know God's been at work? The Lord is able and victorious. This whole nonsense about the younger generation not needing the older generation, I, I, don't even, I can't even go there. Or the idea that the older generation, well, they're just younger. They won't really understand us. They, they may not like your music. <laughs> you know? My grandfather, man, he loved organ, and I'm sorry, organ. I don't know. It's not my thing. I mean, I went to Tennessee, and I worshiped the Southern gospel as a northerner, so it's okay. I can do it. Because the words are what, to me, are really important. But folks, we need one another. And if you think you're too old, if you think you don't have a story, if you think that your testimony is about God's grace and the victories that God has accomplished in and through your life, if you think that's not important for the younger generation to hear, you've bought into a lie, flat out. We need that. They need that. 32 and 33 is interesting because they, remember Joseph said, when you leave the land, take my bones because one day you're going to leave. 400 years later, they take his bones. What do they do? They bury him. They bury his bones in the land, the promised land. What a beautiful picture. Eleazar dies. He's the son of Aaron. He's the high priest. So we have a passing in effect of a baton to another generation. Let me ask you a couple questions. Kind of some takeaway things from this book. Have we become so comfortable with sin that it, does, it just doesn't bother us anymore? 
I'm convicted about that. What, what TV shows do you just allow yourself to watch that you know maybe X amount of years ago that wouldn't have been the case? You know that on it there are things that you don't need to watch. What movies are you willing to go watch? The secularization of our country is indescribable and undeniable. We have movies made about Marvel comic heroes where they're using the name Yahweh as if he's one of the other gods. That's unacceptable. And we as the people of God should never be participating in the things that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for, to rescue us out of, to save us from. Yes, we trip and stumble at times. Praise God for his forgiveness and his grace. None of us are perfect. But folks, we ought to really be thinking through carefully what is it that we're participating in that we've been comfortable with that actually is an affront to a holy God. And as a result, we're not experiencing the victories that God desires for us to experience, that he literally has already said will take place if we will just trust him and walk with him. What kind of music do we listen to? What kind of influences are we allowing into our lives that are not from the Lord? Don't we love to make excuses? We love to pamper our flesh and our fleshly habits. Right? We call sin a disease. It's a condition. Folks, I believe in diseases and I believe in conditions. But let's call sin for what it is. Let's call it sin. And let's understand that Jesus Christ went to the cross for it. Because he's the only answer in the midst of it. What sin's keeping you from experiencing the victory that God has for you? What Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite, Jebusite, whatever, what is it that's out there that somehow you aren't dealing with it in the right way? You are allowing it to infringe upon what God has called you to. And as a result, you're not experiencing the victories of God because you've allowed sin in your life and you've become comfortable in it. And it needs to be confessed and given to the Lord. Folks, our nation's in some kind of state. We can have gay marriage, and that's perfectly fine. We can say, well, they love one another. Somebody born a man can now, by law, evidently, in our public schools, go into an opposite gender bathroom. And that's okay. Folks, that's not okay. That's called sin. And we should not be standing for it. Well, how are we comfortable in it? How do we deal with that? We deal with it in love and grace and in kindness, but in truth, in truth, we deal with it boldly. We don't have to be mean-spirited. We don't have to put people down. But at the same time, we stand for the truth, amen? And we say, that's not right. That's not right. And what did Joshua say is for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a cost with that, folks. 
but are we so worried about the cost that we have forgotten the holiness of God? Are we so worried about what others think that we have forgotten that the most important thing is what God thinks? And are we willing to follow him in the midst of it? One of the sad things, and this is statistically across the board, that in many senses, in many cases, that the church, church members, people who claim to be believers look no different than the world. Wow. That's tough. Because I'll tell you this, you start walking with the Lord, when we get serious about sin and confessing it, when we start getting right with the Lord, folks, we will look very different than the world. Our marriages will look different. Our families will look different. Our activities look different. Our emotion even begins to change and be directed because it's yielded and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a peculiar people, set apart unto God. And the question is, are we walking in his holiness, in his righteousness, and are we yielded to him no matter what the cost may be? Or have we allowed so many things to enter into our lives? We may be walking in the land, so to speak, but we're beset by the sin around us. What's God doing in your life? What's the Lord doing in your life? What is it that you feel like is too difficult for God? What is it that you feel like you can't follow him or can't trust him in? Folks, I wanna tell you something, God is able, and I gotta tell myself that every day, amen? We all go through that. There's no big eyes and little eyes at the cross. I gotta be reminded all the time that the Lord allows box canyons where it looks like we're gonna be destroyed and then suddenly the Lord says, oh, I'll show you a way. You didn't know about it, but I did. It's all good, I got this. What sin have we become so comfortable with in our own lives that as a result of it, we're not experiencing the Lord to the fullest we need to confess it, call it for what it is, get it right so that we can experience the victories that God has already declared to be ours in Christ Jesus because of who we are. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.